welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. Today we'll be discussing the recent flare-up in tensions and violence in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict with Jeremy Pressman. He's Associate Professor of Political Science and Director of Middle East Studies at the University of Connecticut. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, John. So just kind of to sort of set the table for us, Explain how this latest flare-up in tensions started. There were a number of developments that kind of triggered it. There were, and um, I guess we could probably spend our whole time talking about this. I'll try not to. Uh, I'll try not to do that. Maybe it's helpful to to do it kind of in backwards order, which is to think first about some of the larger dynamics, and then tie those into the specific things that um, happened in the last couple months in April and May. So I think in terms of thinking about the larger dynamics, first of all, the fact that Israel occupies the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, since the 1967 wars is a basic starting point. And within that territory, and really all the territory under Israel's control, Israel has many different techniques for controlling Palestinian lives. The second point, I think, is is really specifically about Jerusalem, where I'm going to talk in depth in a minute. But just to bear in mind that in Jerusalem, which and this is also true in other areas, but let me let me say specifically about Jerusalem, the state of Israel has a particular demographic goal. The state of Israel would like Jerusalem to be at least 75% Jewish residents. Uh, and today it's below that. It's probably closer to two-thirds Jewish and, and one-third um, Palestinian. So that kind of links together the idea of occupation with the idea of demography in the sense that um, one part of occupation is trying to reshape the demographics of all the land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, or the land we'd call the West Bank, Gaza, and uh, and Israel. Um, and then I guess the last sort of larger point, although maybe this is more of a medium-term point, is to think about two of the important actors in this conflict, uh, Hamas, the Islamic resistance movement, which has its base, base of strength in Gaza, and, uh, and, the, and the state of Israel. And, and to, to remember that um, they are constantly is not the right word, but they are not infrequently negotiating and renegotiating the terms of their relationship, and in particular, the terms of the Israeli-Egyptian blockade of Gaza. How strict is that blockade at different moments? Who and what can get in and out? How much fishing can Palestinians do? Those kind of things. So if we if we kind of think about that stuff as the as the medium and long term backdrop, then I think that brings us to a, a point where we can discuss what what happened in April and May of of this year. And I think I would focus on three particular triggers for this uh, for this latest crisis, even before we get to the confrontation between Hamas and Israel. So first, uh, at the start of the Muslim Holy Month of Ramadan. Israel decided, I think it's the Israeli police, although maybe it was higher up than that, decided to restrict Palestinian use of the Damascus Gate, which is one of the gates into the old city of Jerusalem. Um, It's a gate where regularly, and especially during the month of Ramadan, Palestinians gather to socialize, to interact. There are vendors there. Um, And Israel decided to close that. They claimed, I think falsely, that they did this every year. Uh, Palestinians were upset and Palestinians began to protest. And so we had confrontations at and around the Damascus Gate. Secondly, um, Israel, as part of its sort of continuing demographic drive, um, has been trying to reshape the Palestinian neighborhoods of Jerusalem. And this works on two levels. 
sometimes it's about Israeli governmental action to insert Israeli Jewish settlers into largely Palestinian neighborhoods. But more often in a place like Sheikh Jarrah, which is one of the Palestinian neighborhoods and the one of the latest controversy in East Jerusalem, more commonly what happens in neighborhoods like that is a private Jewish settler organization um, gets hold of some property and starts to live there and as, as, as a way to increase the Jewish presence, as a way to dispossess Palestinians, etc. And so what we're seeing right now playing out is um, an effort to dispossess several Palestinian families of their homes that they lived in um, for about 70 years. And this is taking place on the, on the backbone of an Israeli law that was passed uh, around 1970 that says that Israeli Jews can use the legal process to claim or reclaim territory that had been in Jewish hands, maybe Jewish owners, prior to the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948. And so that's the basis on which the Jewish settlers in Sheikh Jarrah have been moving forward to, to take over these homes because the courts have been, as they usually do, have been siding with them. I also think it's really important to note here that this law is a perfect illustration of why Palestinian leaders and, and more recently organizations like Human Rights Watch and the Israeli human rights organization B'Tselem have been calling the Israeli system an apartheid system, right? So this law specifically allows Jews to try and reclaim land that was in Jewish hands prior to 1948, but it does not give Palestinians that same right. Even Palestinian citizens of Israel are not allowed to use this law to reclaim uh, lost territory. So in, in this area uh, that we're talking about, there in East Jerusalem, there have been repeated protests uh, pretty heavy-handed Israeli police repeatedly cracking down on peaceful protests. Um, it's been getting a lot of global attention. We've been seeing younger Palestinians using uh, social media uh, very effectively, I think. And also Israel, by the way, arresting journalists here who are trying to cover what's happening to Jerusalem. So that's a second trigger. And then soon thereafter, we then have fighting inside the Al-Aqsa Mosque in the old city of Jerusalem, fighting between Israeli police and Muslim worshipers who are who are there, and um, you know it's really striking. I can't tell you exactly how it all unfolds, but the images of Israeli police not just around the mosque, but inside the mosque, chasing Muslim worshipers uh, using what looks like both tear gas and stun grenades. Dramatic images that resonate very heavily, not just in Palestinian society, but around the region and around the globe in other Arab countries and in the, uh, in the wider Muslim world. And, and so you see each of these things contributing to um, an escalation in and around Jerusalem. Uh, and then you might say bridging us into this next phase when on May 10th, uh, Hamas announces that it's going to defend Jerusalem. This is an opportunity for them to try and advance their own agenda. Uh, that's not how they phrase it, but um, and 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 then we get into the Hamas-Israel uh, dimension as well. I should just say one last thing, which is during this period as well. Of course, there's many other things going on. I want to mention at least one, which is the fragmentation of the Palestinian national movement precedes this time period. It's a long-running problem for the Palestinian national movement, but particularly in the last uh, 30 years or so. There have been no Palestinian legislative elections since 2006. Uh, the Palestinian Authority had uh, announced that there would be elections on May 22nd, just a few days ago. And then um, on April 29th, Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian president, announced that 
those elections were going to be canceled, ostensibly because Israel wasn't allowing Palestinians in East Jerusalem to participate, although many people think that Abbas canceled them because his party would have done poorly and Hamas would have done well. So other people sort of suggest, I think, and this is maybe a legitimate point, that in addition to all the things going on in Jerusalem as a result of Israeli occupation, there's also this kind of bottleneck in Palestinian politics, of both the combination of fragmentation and an inability to use a political or electoral process to, to break that fragmentation, to develop new leadership, to develop some kind of unified national movement. So we saw this kind of spill over into a conflict, a kind of volleying of rockets from Israel, from uh, Gaza into Israel, from Israel, Israel into Gaza. And in some respects, this is comparable to past flare-ups, past conflicts like this, where there's this exchange of, uh, of fire. Uh, 2009, it happened. There was actually an incursion into Gazan territory, I think, and then uh, in 2014 again. And of course, the casualty rates tend to be mostly on the Palestinian side. There's some on the Israeli side. Is there some sense in which you see this uh, episode as, as different than those past episodes? I think you identify a lot of the similarities, and I think that's uh, that's very important. But there certainly were some dynamics that were different and, in, you know, and really made people say to themselves something, there's other dynamics going on here. The first, I think, that, that, that's really important is Palestinian unity. I mentioned just a moment ago about Palestinian fragmentation among Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. But Palestinian fragmentation really is operating on two levels. There's the Palestinian fragmentation that's internal to the Palestinian national movement. So Hamas and Fatah vying to be the leading Palestinian political party and, and the key interlocutor for Israel. But there's also the Israeli effort to divide and fragment the Palestinian national movement. These two things kind of go hand in hand. After all, in its early days, the Islamist movement in uh, Israel and Palestine, of which Hamas emerged as the organization, Israel kind of let that movement grow a little bit because at the time it wanted a counterweight to the Palestine Liberation Organization, the then dominant uh, Palestinian organization. So we have this history of fragmentation and Israel treats Palestinians differently depending on where they live. So there are Palestinians who are citizens of Israel in pre-1967 Israel. Palestinians in East Jerusalem are treated as residents. They have some rights, but they don't vote in national elections. Um, and then Palestinians in the West Bank and arguably in Gaza live under Israeli occupation with very few rights. So, Israel also treats Palestinians in, in many different ways, intentionally in part to, to disconnect Palestine and, 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 and prevent the emergence of some kind of unified national movement. And what was so striking this, this past few weeks was to see a sense, a growing sense of unity among Palestinians. And just to give one example, Palestinian citizens of Israel who live in the Galilee getting on buses to go to Jerusalem to defend Jerusalem from the Israeli occupying forces, the Israeli occupying forces of their own government of the country of which they are citizens, those Palestinians, right? So to see Palestinians from pre-1967 Israel, Palestinians from East Jerusalem, the West Bank and Gaza, all in different ways uh, pushing back against Israeli dominance and in some cases Israeli occupation, um, was quite striking. And, and how that developed 
is going to be crucial um, because it leads into, a, I think, a second point about violence that took place inside pre-1967 Israel. And inside pre-1967 Israel, there was both uh, violence of Jews, Israeli Jews committing violence against Palestinian citizens of Israel and Palestinian citizens of Israel committing violence against Jews. And, and by violence, I mean kind of riot and vigilante type violence. Violence where a gang of men, and it was almost always young men, uh, stopping cars and checking if the person was one of them or the other, and maybe beating up or trying to kill the person if they were one of the other, if it was a Jew, Jews confronting an Arab or Arab, Arabs confronting a Jew. And this is, you know, if you want to talk about um, what are the existential threats to Israel, there was a lot of emphasis in the media on Hamas as an existential threat to Israel. But I, I think you'd have to argue that that was secondary to what was going on inside Israel. To the extent that Israeli citizens of different ethnicities are at war with each other on the streets, right? And, and attacking each other and smashing cars and, and burning everything from faith institutions to other kinds of, of civic uh, structures. It really speaks to whether the, the basic identity and conceit of the state is, is feasible going forward, right? Israel has self-defined as the Jewish state. In 2018, in fact, the Israeli parliament passed the Jewish nation state law, which further strengthened or emphasized the Jewishness of the state of Israel to the detriment of other possible definitions, like a state of all its citizens or, or balancing the Jewish state with democracy. And so this recent internal violence really opens up the question, at least, about how viable is that definition going forward? Can you define away about 20% of your citizenship? And, and I think this really threw that uh, in the open. At the same time that we see, as I mentioned earlier, this kind of growing Palestinian unity, we also strangely see a certain harmony about what's going on on the Israeli side. And by that, I mean the Israeli government and the Israeli security forces, whether formerly the military, the IDF, or, uh, or police forces, which is we see a lot of the tactics migrating from the Israeli occupation, particularly of the West Bank, into pre-1967 Israel. Now, some people would say, well, actually, it's really circular, right? Because the techniques that Israel uses in the West Bank maybe had some roots in the techniques that Israel used in pre-1967 Israel and even pre-1948 before there was a, was a state. So I'm not trying to sort exactly where this all starts, but things like moving Jewish settlers in to change the demographic balance of an area, we see that in pre-1967 Israel. And, and some Palestinian citizens of Israel point to that as a major source of tension in a place like Lod, where there were... Um, there was a lot of violence and, and a lot of confrontation between Arabs and Jews. Um, we see this now after things have seemingly calmed down with the, the nature of the arrests that the Israeli police are making. Uh, I don't have the exact figures in front of me, but something like 90% of those arrested are Arabs, right? The Palestinian citizens of Israel are the ones getting arrested. Now, theoretically, it could be that they were committing 90% of the of the violations. I'm really skeptical of that in the same way I'm generally skeptical of police and government when they put out numbers and say it's all because of what the criminals or enemy or whatever are doing. We should be skeptical of that. And maybe it tells us that this same sense of what happens in the West Bank where Israeli forces will crack down heavily on any form of protest, violent or not, that Palestinians use, but sort of stand by when, when Israeli settlers are using violence towards Palestinians, throwing stones, cutting down olive trees, uh, whatever it is, um, we saw Israeli police sort of standing by 
generally when Jews were committing violence and being much more aggressive and repressive when uh, Palestinian citizens were committing violence. So that sense of, of Palestinian unity may be matched by a sense of Israel, at least at the margin, starting to treat Palestinians in these different spaces in, in similar negative, uh, repressive fashion. How would you characterize the Biden administration's response to all this? The Biden administration described its response as quiet diplomacy. U.S. officials talked about working behind the scenes. They claimed that it would be counterproductive to publicly confront Israel. That's generally consistent with how most recent U.S. presidents, with the exception of former President Trump, have dealt with Israel. They, in these moments of confrontation, particularly between Israel and Hamas, over the last 12 or so years, the United States government, the White House really, has been heavily critical of the Palestinian side and suggested that the Israelis have the right to self-defense. The Biden administration is in a sticky place. There is no diplomatic process right now between Israelis and Palestinians. So there's not really anything to build on. I think you could argue that they could try and stir the pot, try to get Israeli and Palestinian officials to think about possible ways to jumpstart some kind of even minor diplomatic process. But they don't have a lot to work with. And the parties, the Israeli and Palestinian leaders in particular, I'm thinking of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who's been Prime Minister for 12 years, and Palestinian President Abbas, who's been President for this is his 16th year, I think. They, they haven't worked well together. They haven't developed any kind of ideas that you could really latch on to if you were the U.S. Now, I say that because the Biden administration, like every recent U.S. administration, including Donald Trump, Barack Obama, the second President Bush, have been unwilling to use any U.S. leverage on Israel, unwilling to create incentives, material incentives or financial incentives and disincentives for Israel. So on the one hand, you could say they did about what most U.S. recent presidents have done. On the other hand, to say that, we have to accept the fact that they're leaving a lot of potential U.S. tools on the table. And if you're going to leave those tools on the table, and you recognize that Israel's by far the most powerful party in this conflict, then you're probably not going to really be able to generate much momentum. You might be able to blunt some of the damage of these moments. You know, the U.S. now is talking about leading an effort to try and provide reconstruction support for Gaza. But I'm all for reconstruction of Gaza. We have to recognize, I think, a little bit the absurdity of this, that the United States is producing and funding weaponry that Israel is then using to destroy Gaza and or parts of Gaza. And then the U.S. is going to fund reconstruction of those parts until the next time. The, and, we, and we can't get out of this cycle unless the political status quo is going to change. There is no way this is going to change without a change to the political status quo. And so in some, the, the Biden administration did okay, I guess, but they, they did okay within very narrow confines of what U.S. governments have, for the most part, been willing to do to try and shake things up. So you mentioned something there that I want to ask more about. Um, last year, you published a book called The Sword is Not Enough. Um, it talks about force and diplomacy 
uh, in this conflict. And, you know, as I think about some of those past episodes, and even though you said that this one had some differences that are worth uh, meditating on, it still seems, as you said, sort of terribly repetitive. There's uh, some kind of trigger, then there's an outbreak of violence, an enormous amount of uh, destruction and human misery, and then things kind of go along just as they had before. Um, so describe what you argue in your book about the balance between force and diplomacy. Before I do that, I do just want to um, reiterate something that you said about the human misery element here. I mean, I think the, the New York Times this the other day took a very bold move by putting the pictures of all the children who were killed in this conflict on the front of the, of the printed New York Times, putting both Israeli and Palestinian children, although the vast, vast majority, as is usually the case, were Palestinian children. Um, and it, it, you know, to me, it doesn't have to be restricted to children, it's human beings. And, and there is a political way to approach this, but in the meantime, the human misery and the suffering that results, the casualties, the post-traumatic stress are, are monumental. And, and I think it's important to remember that. Uh, in my book, I wrote about the history of the Arab-Israeli conflict and reflecting on the two basic instruments that governments have to achieve their fundamental objectives the use or threat of use of military force uh, and the possibility of diplomacy and negotiations, and, which really to work requires a willingness to make concessions. And building on the work from the 1970s and thereafter of, of the prominent international relations scholar Robert Jervis, I argue that, that states tend to combine these tools in two different ways based on two different ideas or two different understandings of how the world works. The dominant one right now in Israel and Palestine, and you can see it both in the statements of the government of Israel and in the statements by Hamas, is the idea that the way to achieve your fundamental objectives, to protect your national security, to protect your territorial integrity, uh, if you're the Palestinians, to achieve independence finally, um, all those basic fundamental objectives that that pretty much all states and, and national liberation movements either share or in, in the case of national liberation movements aspire to. Uh, the dominant idea right now in, in Israel-Palestine is that the way you achieve that is, is by threatening or using military force. And, and we saw that in, in this most recent conflict, right? When Israel talks about its right for, to self-defense, it's immediately connected to the right to bomb the crap out of Gaza. And, and when Hamas talks about achieving independence, breaking the Israeli blockade of Gaza or the Israeli-Egyptian blockade of Gaza, Hamas immediately emphasizes um, firing rockets at Israel and, and trying to, to thwart Israel's missile defense system. And, and that's just one of, one of the means that they use uh, towards Israel. And again, in both cases, what's coupled with this belief in the dominance of force is this disinterest or, or minimizing of the possibility of political solutions. So neither party advancing any kind of broad political vision for how to meet the needs of both peoples, two peoples who are both seeking the same land as their homeland. Um, and, and just a kind of dismissal that diplomacy and even worse, negotiations and concessions are a form of appeasement and a form of weakness. 
And we see this over and over again in both Israeli policy and Hamas policy, that, that when push comes to shove, the way to defend yourself and the way to advance your national interests is through uh, violence and, and military force. Now, contrary to that, there's, a, there's simply the reverse. There, there is, and, and it has, at moments, it has poked out in the, or in, in the Arab-Israeli conflict. And the reverse would simply be that force has limitations. Force is a blunt instrument. Force does not lead to any kind of stability or permanent stability. And instead, states and other actors need to emphasize the use of diplomacy and need a willingness to make concessions at the bargaining table in order to try to advance their national interests. And so if you want to look at it from the perspective of the Palestinian national movement, that if the Palestinians want to get closer to realizing Palestinian self-determination, they're going to have to embrace much more broadly a political process, even in the face of, of violent occupation, and also on the side of the Israeli government, that if Israel wants national security, if Israel wants to escape a situation where Hamas rockets are firing at Israel, Jews and Arabs are fighting each other in the streets of Israel, there were even a few missiles that came over from Lebanon this time, uh, Jordanians were protesting along the border or at least the, the, the demarcation line between Israel and, and Jordan or, or the West Bank and Jordan. If, if you want to try and deal with all these national security crises that Israel faces, you also have to think about using diplomacy. And we've, we've seen twice really in the conflict when this, uh, when this occurred. The first time was in the, late, the, the mid and late 1970s when we had successful negotiations between Egypt and Israel that ended in the 1979 Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty. And then the second time is in the 1990s, when in 1993, this time facilitated by Norway, Israelis and Palestinians negotiated the first Oslo Agreement. Unlike the Egyptian-Israeli case, that didn't work out, right? And we could talk about why, but in those moments, there were leaders on both sides supported by just enough of their public who were willing to give negotiations a chance and we're willing to consider making concessions. I don't think particularly in the Oslo case, Israeli leaders fully understood what those concessions would have to be to get to some kind of successful conclusion. But nonetheless, they were at least willing to make some very important concessions. And, and right now we have leaders who, who don't entertain that notion. And, and we see the result in kind of this, this recurrence of, um, political stalemate, political failure, and, and human suffering. One thing you often hear with regard to negotiations and the kinds of talks that the United States have mediated in the past, Oslo, for example, is that what happens is that uh, the United States and Israel uh, offer Palestinians some magnanimous deal, and the Palestinians reject it because it isn't fully what they want. Um, that characterization is extremely popular. Uh, you had an excellent article uh, back in 2003 in the journal International Security that went through in pretty granular detail to uh, uh, upset that dominant narrative. Uh, can you explain, not necessarily in Oslo, but in general, is that the dynamic? Is that a, is that a proper understanding of how things have gone? First, uh, thank you for mentioning the article. And for those who might be interested, particularly in that article, um, International Security has made that available for free 
So people who want to follow up on that are welcome to do so. The idea that Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity, as it's often phrased, is a common and very useful trope for the Israeli government and sometimes for U.S. officials who want to support that Israeli government. But it does not bear relation to the historical record. In fact, the historical record demonstrates that that is not the case. As is often the case in long-running conflicts, what the historical record suggests is that there are moments when both parties make decisions that thwart a diplomatic resolution. And it's incorrect, historically inaccurate, to put all that blame, if, this, if, if a blame game is of interest to people, to put all that blame on the Palestinian National Movement. The Palestinian National Movement has made some bad decisions over the years that maybe undermine the drive towards, towards independence. But at the end of the day, each of the diplomatic failures has multiple causes, and they're not all attributable to one party. Uh, Oslo, I think, and in particular, the Camp David summit of July 2000, both provides uh, a historical moment when proponents of that false belief argue that the Palestinians blew it, and yet it also provides the historical record that demonstrates to us that there was a lot more going on there. And in particular, that the Israeli government at the time, led by Prime Minister Ehud Barak, or at least Barak himself, the prime minister who got to make the final decisions by definition of being the prime minister, did not fully understand what the minimum concessions it would take were for the Palestinians to accept uh, and agree to a two-state solution. Didn't understand what it meant in particular on the question of Jerusalem. And there never was at the Camp David summit a single offer where Israel put on every issue its position and the concession on the table. They talked about a number of different issues, the U.S., Israeli, and Palestinian negotiators, but they never arrived at a single comprehensive uh, package. And part of the reason was that on the question of Jerusalem, where Palestinians would like East Jerusalem to serve as the capital of the future Palestinian state, the Israeli prime minister was not there. The Israeli prime minister was not willing to give Palestinians full sovereignty throughout East Jerusalem. And that's just one, maybe the most important example of they weren't, there was not a meeting of the minds on that issue. But I'll, I'll close by saying that this is a really useful um, argument for Israeli officials, right? And it's so ingrained and it gets repeated by prominent talking heads and columnists in the United States that it's a very useful way of undermining your opponent, of shutting down the possibility of future negotiations, right? We tried that and they weren't interested. Why bother is kind of the implication here. And so I think it's a, it's a crucial misunderstanding and, and I really wish people would look, better, look, look more carefully. I really wish people would look more carefully at the historical record because I think it, it quickly undermines that approach. You alluded earlier to uh, some ways in which the Trump administration's approach to uh, Israel was unique uh, compared to predecessors. He definitely made a, a, a major decision in announcing the 
move from uh, the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Um, but there were other decisions as well. Can you kind of characterize the Trump years and what they did to the Israel-Palestine conflict? The Trump administration, I guess the simplest way to say it, was all in on Israel and almost completely disinterested in the Palestinians other than a, as a minor pawn that in some small way needed to be dealt with, but was, was basically irrelevant to the future of Israel. And I mean, I would say Israel-Palestine, but they certainly wouldn't say the future of Israel-Palestine. The, the top Trump officials don't believe in Palestine. And I don't think genuinely believe when you talk about Jared Kushner or the U.S. ambassador to Israel then, David Friedman. I don't think they even really believe in the idea of a Palestinian state. The Trump administration, if anything, was willing to move faster than even the right-wing Israeli government itself. So the Trump administration announced, in the president himself announced in December 2017 that the United States was going to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital and move the U.S. embassy. And in May 2018, the U.S. moved the, the embassy to Jerusalem, even though pre previous presidents had resisted congressional pressure to do so and congressional legislation to do so. Uh, president Trump also recognized Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights, which is uh, Syrian territory that Israel captured in also in 1967. So there was a, a, a disinterest in the Palestinians. The United States closed the, the consulate in Jerusalem that was the primary interface between the U.S. government and Palestinian leaders in Ramallah and elsewhere in the West Bank. So at every level, uh, cutting funding for the Palestinians, at every level, it was about disregarding the Palestinians and, and the whole idea that they, they're entitled to anything or, or that they have any kind of legitimate national aspirations and showering everything Israel could want, every, every position. I think at, at a deeper level, you could suggest that Trump was not, tr Trump did not care about the international norm that acquiring territory in war through force is illegitimate. We see that not only in Israel, where he was willing to give U.S. recognition on Jerusalem and on the Golan Heights, but also with Morocco and Western Sahara, where, again, President Trump, for, for transactional reasons, I think, was very blasé about the international legal and normative dimension of these kinds of uh, questions. I think it's important to be clear that it's not that in the past the United States took a 50-50 approach to Palestinians and Israelis. It didn't. Israel is the United States' close ally. American officials talk about the unbreakable bond with Israel, the special relationship. They don't talk that way about the Palestinian people or the Palestinian National Movement or the Palestinian Authority. So there's always been a pretty dramatic imbalance between how the United States government, the White House, treats these two parties, especially as we get um, from Reagan forward in the 1980s. But that said, there's an imbalance, and then there's a kind of, under Trump, a just total dismissal of the Palestinians. And this culminates in the Trump plan, the Trump proposal for settling the, the conflict that was issued in January 2020. And there's so many ways to illustrate that. I'll just mention a few. One is that the plan in the tiny fragments of a state that the Palestinians would get under the plan, if you even want to call it a state, Israeli settlements would remain. So there'd be 15 Israeli settlements at least inside the Palestinian state. 
the state would be fragmented. Uh, and then repeatedly in the plan, for Palestinian steps to move forward, uh, the plan requires Israel, Israeli approval. So one after another moments in the plan where there are veto points for Israel or Israel and the U.S., um, including very heavy restrictions on, on sovereignty. And in the meantime, the plan would allow Israel to annex large chunks of the West Bank with U.S. support and U.S. recognition. So to go where I started, President Trump was all in on Israel and, and anything that the Israeli right wing wanted. I can't think of anything really that the Israeli right wing wanted that President Trump wasn't willing to to approve. And, and to do it, by the way, without any anything in return. Right. And I think this is something we see across President Trump's foreign policy. When he wanted to do something in foreign policy, it, it didn't necessarily, if, if he thought it benefited him or maybe the Republican Party, it, there wasn't, it wasn't necessary that Israel make any concessions in return. It was just sort of freebies being handed out. Um, but I think because he thought it would help him, and correctly, help him with certain domestic constituencies that supported his presidency. The standard model for determining some kind of solution to this conflict has uh, really been that uh, two states will be uh, founded along roughly the 1967 lines with some minor and mutual adjustments. And then there's, there's other issues that were sort of farther from uh, being able to be really hashed out in a, in a fair way that pleases both sides. But now, I think partly because of the extent of uh, Jewish settlements in the West Bank and because of the, uh, the frail nature of the Palestinian leadership and a lot of other issues, um, people are increasingly looking for an alternative. One of the popular notions on offer is that instead of two states, there should just be one state where uh, a single government uh, from the river to the sea can treat all of its citizens equally. Um, that's a controversial view still, but uh, how do you view uh, this notion that maybe the, the standard way we've been shooting for a solution is, is possibly not the most appropriate? I think it's very clear that the two-state solution is in trouble. Ian Lustick of the University of Pennsylvania has written a good short book, if people are interested, about why the two-state solution is trouble. He argues that one-state solution is the only possibility at this point. I would take the position that both a two-state solution, where you have a state of Palestine alongside the state of Israel, or a one-state solution where all the territory is part of the same state and everyone has equal rights, I would argue that each of those solutions faces major obstacles. And whereas I think many analysts are willing to argue that one of those is dead or impossible and the other is the route forward, I guess I'm more pessimistic overall because both of them face tremendous obstacles. As you suggested, the, the two-state solution requires significant concessions on Israel's part. It requires Israel to give up the vast majority of the West Bank, including locations that for religious and nationalist reasons, Israeli Jews find very important, or some Israeli Jews find very important. There are over 600,000 Israeli settlers in East Jerusalem and the, West, the rest of the West Bank. So 
at a minimum, you'd have to move one or 200,000, even if you annexed some of the large settlements that are close to Israel, pre-67 Israel, you'd still have to move 100, 200,000 Israeli Jewish settlers. When Israel moved eight or 9,000 settlers from Gaza in 2005, it was a major national crisis. And now you're talking about 100 or 200,000, and the, the right wing is more powerful than it was in 2005 in Israel. So it's very, it's very difficult because of the settlements. It's very difficult to think about Jerusalem and Israel continues to assert now with official U.S. stamp of approval under President Trump that Jerusalem is Israel's capital, that it should remain forever a united city under Israeli Jewish rule. And so it's just, it's hard to, if, if a two-state solution is some kind of separation or divorce, it's hard to do that when the peoples are so entangled intentionally as a result of Israeli policy and on the part of some Israeli Jews intentionally as a way to thwart the two-state solution, right? If we, if we put as many Israeli Jews as we can into the West Bank and in Jerusalem, it's going to make it, in East Jerusalem, it's going to make it harder and harder. To, to possibly disentangle in a way that's required for a two-state solution. However, it's still, even though, if you look at polling data, even though no solution is that popular, the two-state solution still does the best, of, the best of the worst, I guess you could say. And it is also still the darling of the international community. It's the solution that U.S. presidents in the 21st century talk about, the United Nations, European leaders, Russia, China, etc., if we instead try and turn towards the, the one-state solution, I think in particular when I mentioned earlier about Jewish-Arab violence inside pre-1967 Israel, the one-state solution requires us to imagine that at least on some level, Jews and Palestinians could coexist as citizens of the same state. And the recent evidence suggests that that's a dangerous bet to make. So that's one problem. And that's a problem in a two-state solution inside Jerusalem anyway. And now you're just making it a problem of the whole territory. Can Palestinians and Jews get along with each other in a nonviolent fashion? But the second thing, which I think is as big or bigger an obstacle to a one-state solution, is that Israel right now has self-defined as the Jewish state. Israel controls most of the cards right now. Israel is by far more powerful. It's a wealthy economy. It's a nuclear weapons state. It's one of the most powerful militaries in the world. And from that position of strength, Israel is going to voluntarily integrate with Palestinians and provide equal citizenship in a situation where, if not now, then very soon the Palestinians will be in the, in the majority in terms of population. It just, it, what state has done that, has willingly redefined itself, whether it should or not? I'm not talking about the moral dimensions, the appropriateness of it. In power terms, it, it, can we really expect that Israel is going to do that, especially when the idea does not have a lot, at least yet, does not have a lot of popularity either on the Israeli Jewish side or on the, on the Palestinian side. And so both of these proposed solutions, which, as I said, analysts often bat back and forth, face major, you know, fundamental challenges to their, uh, to their implementation. And, you know, people have tried to come up with other possibilities, a confederal solution where you wouldn't move Israeli settlers, they could live in the West Bank, but that would be Palestine, but they'd have rights, they'd be citizens of Israel. Maybe, but I just think it's, it's quite convoluted and itself has many moments or many aspects that could lead to uh, infighting, damage, and other, other problems. So 
no one has – I don't know that the menu is going to get longer, right? I don't, I don't know that there's much more to put on the table other than the solutions that are already out there. But it's about wrestling with very difficult challenges, uh, regardless of which, which approach we take. One of the interesting dynamics that was especially apparent in this latest uh, flare-up of violence is the partisan divide in America on this issue. Um, you know, with perhaps an asterisk there, th by and large, in general, it can be said that, uh, you know, Republicans and Democrats uh, have roughly the same approach uh, on this issue. Maybe it could be said that in the past, Republicans have been a little more pro-Israel than uh, Democrats. But now what we see, I think, is uh, some changing uh, in the Democratic Party towards uh, far more explicit criticism of Israel and even not just Israeli actions, but U.S. policy in support of it. Um, and I wonder what you think about the future uh, if this issue becomes partisan in, in, in this way, in a real solidified way. As backdrop, I think in the last five to ten years, the Republican Party in the U.S. and Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud Party and other right-wing parties in Israel have made a kind of mutual decision or had a mutual recognition that treating the U.S.-Israeli relationship as partisan could work to their benefit. And so whereas we had several decades, particularly I would say from you know roughly 1980, maybe a little earlier until 2010 for sure, that this was a bipartisan foreign policy issue, I think we've seen a, a pretty dramatic shift over the last few years. It's partly because we no longer think about this just in terms, or especially in terms of American Jews, but also in terms of the American evangelical community, which has swung very strongly behind uh, Netanyahu and right-wing Israeli governments. And, and that fed into, I think, President Trump's position as well. And so meanwhile, in the Democratic Party, as Republicans are closely embracing Israel and anything it does, right, a kind of uh, Israel can do no wrong approach, and we're going to cheer Israel every step of the way, Democrats in Congress are starting to express a much wider range of viewpoints. There are, from what I've seen and heard, there are very few, if any, Democrats in Congress reject Israel's right to exist or want to, you know, want to see the end of Israel, that kind of position. But what we do see is vocal support for a two-state solution, whereas now in the Republican Party, we don't see a lot of support for that. We also see among Democrats many Democrats, not all, a willingness to criticize Israel's military conduct. And we see this not just from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party in Congress, not just from Bernie Sanders and AOC, who did both speak out against Israel's conduct in this most recent confrontation with Hamas. But we also saw it from other members of the Democratic Party that, and it was surprising, right, to see Senator Bob Menendez from New Jersey, the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, to see him issue a statement where he said he was deeply troubled, and those are his words, deeply troubled by Israel's uh, conduct in Gaza towards civilians and towards uh, media. This was right after Israel bombed, um, where I think it was right after where they bombed, the where the Associated Press was housed in Gaza, where their office was. 
this is someone who's a kind of stalwart of the of the so-called pro-Israel community. Uh, Chris Murphy, my home state senator in Connecticut, spoke out about Israel's conduct. So I, I so I think we are seeing a wider range of viewpoints in the Democratic Party. It. I think we are seeing a wider range of viewpoints in the Democratic Party. Now, it might be, you know, people always like to talk about Overton windows and who's pushing the envelope. And it might be that as Representative Ocasio-Cortez and Representative Tlaib, and Representative Omar and, and uh, Senator Sanders, and maybe to a lesser extent, Senator Warren are pushing the edge and, and their Democratic rank and file are, are playing into that. Uh, or interested in that, it may force people like Menendez or Senator Murphy to to rethink a little bit. Bear in mind also that on the question of, of human rights, it may also be that that's resonating more. And so, you know, the Biden administration comes in talking a lot about human rights in general. And then a few months in, they have this crisis where both Hamas and Israel do not look like they care very much about human rights as they're confronting each other. And it doesn't matter in a sense so much for Hamas. I mean, it'd be great if they were held accountable, but it doesn't matter so much in the sense they're not a U.S. ally. But Israel's a U.S. ally. And so on the one hand, you're pushing this human rights vision. On the other hand, your ally's conduct uh, doesn't really square with that. And, and, and so the question, I think, for the Democratic Party is, how do you handle the case of Israel-Palestine in the face of what looks like a larger party commitment to, to being serious about human rights. So we, we are seeing changes in the Democratic Party. All that said, there are still many Democratic members of Congress and, by the way, a president of the United States right now who are more comfortable with the old way, with the notion that this is a bipartisan relationship and the United States at the end of the day is always going to support Israel and is always going to issue statements that Israel has the right to defend itself. Yeah, as uh, I mean, it's still a very dominant view in U.S. officialdom that the U.S. relationship with Israel is extremely valuable, you know, uh, redounds in all kinds of uh, beneficial ways to U.S. interests. Um, do you see that? I mean, what does the United States get? out of its close relationship and constant support of Israel, what value add to U.S. interests uh, are there? I'd start by thinking about history and thinking about how the history of that relationship and the U.S. need for it has changed in ways that make it more challenging for Israel to demonstrate its need to the United States today in 2021 than during the Cold War. In the 1970s, when we saw the rise of the U.S. as a major mediator and the orchestrator of the Arab-Israeli peace process. The United States had several challenges in the Middle East that Israel was, was, I guess you could say, wrapped up in. The United States was trying to weaken the Soviet position in the Middle East, as it was trying to weaken the Soviet position in many parts of the world as part of the, the Cold War, or, or at least um, contain right the Soviet position, to use the common phrasing. Um, and at the same time, in the 1970s, the U.S. faced the oil crisis as a result of the Arab-Israeli conflict, right? The 1973-1974 oil crisis is an outgrowth of the 1973 Arab-Israeli war. 
So the United States, Israel's mixed up in some really important things in the United States. That has changed a lot, right? The Soviet Union hasn't been here for 30 years. Cold War's over. U.S. energy politics are different today. U.S. energy resources are different today than they were in the 1970s, particularly the growth of, of U.S. domestic energy industry in the last few years. So the pressure to kind of resolve this has changed. I think that, you know, the most common explanations, I think, for proponents of the U.S.-Israeli alliance from the U.S. end would talk about strategic cooperation with Israel on uh, intelligence sharing, counterterrorism, and, and maybe countering Iran in the region, a U.S. adversary. How much Israel really helps on those questions, I think, I'm not sure. And even, even beyond that, how unique is the Israeli contribution? I think would be a second question I want to ask. I don't have the answer. But to the extent that it's not unique, that it's that there's substitutions, that might also be an issue. I mean, none of the U.S. allies in the region right now have a great track record on human rights and democracy. They have different kinds of challenges. But if you look across Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Israel, Jordan, they're all struggling with these issues, again, in, in different ways, or some similar ways in some different ways. So it's not clear to me at all the extent to which the, the claim that the United States, Israel's a strategic asset to the United States is, is true. Periodically, there have been U.S. military leaders, uh, General David Petraeus is one that comes to mind, periodically who have expressed that it might be a net negative for the United States, that a close alliance with Israel stirs up anti-U.S. forces in the region. Again, the evidence for that is ambiguous, I think. But, it, but that's plausible too. That might weigh the other way. So I'm giving you a kind of mushy answer here, but I, I think the jury is out on the extent to which Israel is a vital asset for the United States. The, the reverse, I think, is true, right? The United States provides a lot to Israel that Israel probably couldn't get elsewhere if it doesn't get it from the United States. In particular, I'm thinking about protection at the UN Security Council and access to U.S. weapons technology, not just providing aid to buy it, but actually giving Israel often early or first access to very advanced U.S. technology. So certainly Israel needs the U.S. The extent to which the U.S. needs Israel, I think, is an open question. Jeremy Pressman, thanks for joining the show today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.